Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Shadi Mehrazan, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Mark Huddleston, who served as the president of the University of New Hampshire from 2007 to 2018. He also served as president of Ohio, Ohio Wesleyan University, dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Delaware, and is a faculty member at SUNY Buffalo and the University of Delaware. Today, Dr. Huddleston lives with his wife in Vermont and Florida and is a self-professed good pilot and bad golfer. Most recently, Dr. Huddleston delivered the 2021 Perkins Bass Distinguished Lecture at Dartmouth College titled The Burden of Student Debt, Dimensions, Complexities, and Options. Dr. Huddleston, we're so grateful to have you with us on this podcast once again, especially to discuss such an important issue. Thank you, So starting off with a big scope question. It's clear that if anything, student debt in the United States is a rather expensive issue and over $1.6 trillion issue to be exact. How did we get to such a big, massive point? Well, I would like to say that it snuck up on us, but it actually has been growing dramatically for 20 years. And um, uh, why all of a sudden it has uh, kind of burst into public consciousness, I'm not sure. But um, it, it's something that is that's been uh, accelerating for quite a while, and it it reflects to a considerable extent, I think, the rising cost of higher education itself. It tracks almost exactly with uh, increases in tuition and fees in, in uh, institutions of higher, higher education. Definitely, I think I think a lot of people associate student debt with um, as a product of rising tuition. Is is that really the case? Um, or are there other factors at hand here, depending on who is borrowing, um, how, why they borrow, et cetera? Yeah, I'm sure it it, uh, it it does depend to some extent on which segment of the population you're looking at. But it, broadly speaking, there's also a debate about the extent to which it's driven by rising tuition versus um, uh, the changes in the ease of getting debt. Uh, that's not a constant over this period. It's gotten easier to borrow money over this period of time. Uh, some people have also suggested that fundamental changes in the economy since the Great Recession of uh, 2007, 2008 have uh, made for some structural uh, uh, changes that have helped propel the debt crisis. So um, I think there, there are a variety of, of factors. I, I, I saw one study from the Federal Reserve, one of the uh, regional Federal Reserves that uh, did a regression analysis and estimated about, I think it was 62%, roughly speaking, of the increase in debt could be explained by rising tuition and fees. The rest was a function of those other kinds of things. Wow, yeah. Um, so kind of Based on that, what what are a few facts regarding who owes student debt in this country, how they may owe student debt that may surprise our listeners? Yeah, I think the biggest surprise that I had when I started to investigate this, um, like two, let me pick two things. First thing that surprised me was um, the uh, asymmetry of the debt. That uh, when you when you look at the total amount of debts, about $1.7 trillion, and you divide it by the number of borrowers, which is about 40, uh, 42 million, you get a number of $40,000 per head. And that kind of fixates, I think, it fixes most people's minds, and that becomes the 
um, the number that they carry around. But in fact, what you find when you look closely at this is that most uh, students don't owe that much money. Uh, in fact, 30% of undergraduates leave college without owing a nickel to anybody. They graduate with no debt. And of those who do owe debt, a fairly large percentage owe very little, uh, under $10,000 uh, uh, or so. So uh, and, and conversely, what one finds is that a relatively small number of people owe an awful lot of money, far more than $40,000. So that's what I meant by asymmetry, that um, when we think about this problem, we need to try to keep in our head the fact that it is um, a, a pretty, pretty bumpy slope with a bunch of different um, uh, points of rise on it rather than a single line that accurately describes the debt profile. The second thing that surprised me, though, to answer your question is um, the fact that so much of the debt is held by graduate students rather than undergraduate students. I think when, again, when most Americans think about this, they have in mind the average um, uh, young man or woman who graduates with a BA or a BS and is uh, staggering under this debt load. And to some extent that there, there is truth to that, there are students who fit that profile, but much more is it the case that it's graduate students that uh, have been uh, propelling this rise in student debt and who leave school with their master's degree or their PhD or their professional degree under really, really staggering uh, amounts of, of student debt. And uh, in fact, for much of the last decade, um, undergraduate student debt was kind of flat, even declined over some uh, periods of time, while graduate student debt uh, was marching pretty relentlessly upwards. So that was the second thing that surprised me. Yeah, that's really interesting. Kind of given that trend and also the relation you you kind of mentioned between um, student debt and, and rising tuition, I guess what, what part of our problem can be solved by reducing tuition in the first place? Like what's, I guess, what's the larger link between college debt and, and college affordability? Well, if you take that Federal Reserve study seriously, I guess you could eliminate uh, a good chunk of it by either reducing or eliminating uh, tuition. Uh, that said, um, one of the slides that I showed during my presentation from, uh, from a Brookings Institution analysis pointed out um, the following surprising fact, and that is that students who attend a zero net tuition institution, meaning that they go to a college where uh, as a result of, of uh, financial aid, they really don't pay any tuition at all. Uh, and you compare them to students that go to mid or high net tuition institutions, meaning that they go to colleges, universities where they do have to pay a fairly substantial amount in tuition and fees. The amount of debt that they hold at the end of their time is pretty similar, other things being equal. And what that would suggest is that even if you were to eliminate tuition or reduce it severely, you'd still have a debt problem. And you have a debt problem uh, in part because think about it when you go to college, not only do you have to uh, pay your tuition and fees, but you've also got to eat and you've got to put a roof over your head and you've got to buy clothes uh, and so forth. And those expenses are real and they're continuing. And uh, many students simply can't afford them out of pocket. They can't work enough hours at a part-time job. They can't work enough in the summer to save up the money to pay for their living expenses. So they wind up having to borrow. So Tuition and fees are a big part of the equation for sure, but they're not the only factor. And that's why, just to continue the point, that's why I mentioned during my talk that I think part of the solution going forward 
is to address the amount of money we make available in Pell Grants uh, for needy students. That the current amount, in many cases, is, is enough to pay for tuition and fees at many public institutions. Not enough at all, including in New Hampshire, I might add. But um, uh, it certainly is not enough to allow students to pay living expenses, which means that they will incur debt. That's a great point. Um, I guess kind of going to why students maybe felt like more able to take out these massive loans and um, what have been the role of like low interest rates, maybe the attractiveness of more loan companies out in circulation, like how have those played a role in attracting students to take out loans and, and, and take that risk and go to an out of state school or go to a more expensive school? Yeah, um, actually, it's not. A, it, it used to in the old days. Arguably, it could have been predatory lenders that were out there uh, beating the bushes and finding students to lend money to. That's not the case anymore. It's really the federal government is the only uh, real lender for, for most students, and they're not out there trying to encourage students directly to take out loans they can't afford. Um, that said, I think that uh, the culprits are many. I think that we do a really poor job. Um, in secondary school, giving uh, young men and women financial literacy. I don't think many students go into this with really, really fully informed about what the, uh, what the implications are. Um, and students in the worst straits are those who come from backgrounds where they're the first in their family ever to go to college. They don't have parents who can uh, advise them and, and counsel them about what it means to take out these kinds of loans. And you know, I'm sympathetic, I'm, I'm deeply sympathetic because I know that on the one hand, uh, their life chances are going to be immeasurably improved by going to college. That is true. I mean, they, the statistic that people use um, is, is accurate, that you make around a million dollars more over the course of your work life if you have a college degree than if you don't. And that, I think kids know that, uh, even kids who are first-gen uh, students. But by the same token, um, I don't think they can fully process what it means to take out uh, the loans to achieve that dream. And it's just all kind of, you know, airy-fairy out there. It's not real. It's monopoly money or something. And, and if we had better counseling in high schools, if parents were better informed, if there were fuller disclosures, I think we get more students um, making the decision to go to college, making the decision to take out loans, but doing so in a way that was smarter. And by smarter, I mean attending in-state public institutions or institutions that provide a better financial aid package. And they don't get distracted by the glitter of going to an institution that may sound good on paper or their best friends going to, or they did a better job hitting them with uh, uh, text messages while they were seniors or web advertisements. Uh, there's just an awful lot of that that goes on, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. What happens to those schools, like you said, like that their friends may be going to, or it's a private, more costly school, um, when when those students do choose to migrate to a, a maybe a, a state school that's, that's cheaper because they're a resident of the state? Um, would do those schools end up just becoming more exclusive or how, how can those schools compensate to kind of fill that gap if there, if there, if there, if there is a migration? Well, that's a real dilemma. Uh, as I mentioned, many of us, especially in public higher ed, especially at flagship institutions like I was affiliated with, are 
are guilty, but we're guilty because we didn't see what alternative we had. We all, I mean, it was really kind of silly uh, in, in an ultimate sense, because here I am in New Hampshire encouraging kids from Massachusetts to come so that they will pay higher levels of tuition, while there are people in Massachusetts who are waving their hands, encouraging kids from New Hampshire to come to Massachusetts. It's all a big game. Um, and it's being played because we were defunded largely by our state legislatures and governors. And the only way we one of the main ways we saw of surviving was to attract uh, full fee paying out of state students or foreign students. I mean, that was the other major uh, element of this uh, of this game for the last 10 years. If you could attract students from overseas who were willing and able to pay full out of state rates, that would help uh, uh, fix your budget problems. So um, I, I don't see an easy way out of it for those uh, flagship public institutions. Private institutions, I don't think, really are in the same boat, not the selective ones anyway. The non-selective ones uh, are, are similarly incentivized to encourage uh, students who can't afford it to come because they have no skin in the game. Um, uh, it, it, it's the student and his or her parents or whoever signs the promissory notes that, that are ultimately on the hook for uh, all those loan dollars. Institutions do not have um, any stake in it. And that's one of the things I said during my talk. I think that we need to insist that higher institutions have some skin in the game. Uh, otherwise, we're going to be allowed to encourage bad behavior in effect. So. That's a great point. Um, a lot of, I guess, higher endowment schools, um, schools across the country, private schools, you have started to kind of raise um, the income threshold for um, replacing loans with grants. Um, and that's been a, a generally, I think, popular um, move uh, by those colleges. Do you think there's more that those kinds of schools can do in that um, area? And how far do you think they might have to go to kind of be more accommodating to students and prevent them from taking out so much student debt? Yeah, I don't, you know, speaking of the Dartmouths and Harvards and uh, other really highly selective, highly endowed institutions of the world, very few of them uh, are, are villains in this piece. I mean, most, most students who graduate from those kinds of institutions today, without even further enhancements to those uh, loan to grant kind of programs, already graduate with very little debt. And um, I, I think those who can afford it have already done pretty much what they need to do to ensure that their students are not going to suffer. But that's a really thin slice of, of, of the student body in America. Most students don't attend those kinds of institutions. And um, uh, I don't think actually there are, I know a lot of people in higher education from a lot of different kinds of institutions. I don't think many of them are predatory. I think all of us are in this because we believe in the mission and anybody who can, I think, is doing all they can to make their institutions as affordable as possible, just that most people aren't in a position to do that. There was a piece in the higher ed press, I think even this morning, that said that um, Lawrence University, which is a private institution in Appleton, Wisconsin, not the most highly selective, but not a unselective institution either, and not a really highly endowed, but not a impoverished institution either, had had a capital campaign trying to raise enough money to do 
exactly what you just said. They were going to make it essentially need blind and, and, and uh, package aid so that students wouldn't graduate with a lot of debt. And they sort of had to say sorry today uh, that even though they had raised a lot of money, costs had outstripped their fundraising and they were not able any longer to make that assurance. And I think they're probably exemplary of a lot of the vast majority of institutions in that big middle of the pack in American higher ed. They just don't have an endowment large enough to make good on that kind of a a promise, nor, nor will they ever given uh, fundraising trends and and cost trends. I'm afraid We, we have to think about other kinds of solutions. That's a really great point. Um, and I think a point that a lot of people don't really think about when they think of the grand scheme of higher education in this country, um, kind of based on how we move forward from that, I think the most, it seemed like the most popular solution currently is the idea of student debt forgiveness, particularly by the federal government, um, with, with many candidates for president, current members of Congress, the Biden administration kind of suggesting either partially or entirely forgiving student loan debt. Um, for someone who does have student loan debt, that sounds like a like a great idea. Um, but, but what would be some of the implications of that um, kind of plan um, in in the long term? Well, I think there are, there are plans and there are plans. The, the most uh, widely trumpeted ones, the most widely discussed ones, are those of uh, Senator Sanders and Senator Warren, who called for essentially wiping all 1.7 trillion dollars off the federal books and just forgiving all that debt. Uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, has had a $50,000 ahead forgiveness plan, which is not quite 1.7 trillion, but it's it's way up there. President Biden has proposed a $10,000 ahead uh, cap on loan forgiveness with some targeting of that uh, of that forgiveness. And so it really depends on which one you're looking at. I think the most sweeping ones are certainly in some ways the most popular because who didn't, who doesn't want to have their, their debt go away? But uh, I, I don't think it's a good idea. And I don't think it's a good idea in part because uh, for, you have to ask yourself, what problem are you trying to solve as a matter of public policy? And if the problem you're trying to solve is uh, well, let's see, young people can't afford to buy a house, so they can't afford to buy a car, they can't afford to get met, whatever. I think there are probably better ways to approach that problem, solve them more effectively with less money. If your point, however, is simply to appeal to kind of a populist audience, that may not be the best way to proceed. But um, so I, I just think that uh, it, it's, it's a very expensive way to approach a problem that might be solved in, in a better way. Moreover, um, I've, I've also said, and I said it in tonight's presentation, that I believe as much as I love higher education and think it is largely a public good, it's not a pure public good. People who go to college do better over the course of their lives than people who don't go to college. It's not unreasonable to ask people to make an investment in their own future. Small levels of debt, manageable levels of debt are fine. I mean, we all take out loans to buy cars or start businesses or buy houses and so forth. We, we expect a return on that investment. And similarly, sure, I took out loans to go to college. They were paid back amply. I paid back my loans and the loans paid back me many times over and what I got out of education. So I think, you know, small loans are fine and they're, they're, they're the right thing to do. But more importantly, even than that, I think is the fact that it's, it's fundamentally regressive and it's not what you would expect from 
uh, a Senator Sanders or Senator Warren if they were actually forced to think very hard about it. Most of the people who have most of the debt are relatively well-to-do. And if you simply do away with that debt, you're asking your next door neighbor who's a plumber who didn't go to college, or you're asking some guy who maybe did go to college but isn't earning very much money to pay back the loans of somebody who is a plastic surgeon or who is um, making a lot of money doing something else. So um, again, it's got a superficial appeal to simply to do away with that debt, but it isn't very smart ultimately, I don't think. That's a really interesting point. Um, so kind of based on that, and you, and you mentioned kind of the, the role that this is not like a one solution kind of problem, right? There, there needs to be a lot of parties at hand to kind of come together and, and solve this in different ways. Uh, what, what, what do you think those parties are and where, what are like top three or four ways we can kind of start attacking this issue in a, in a more comprehensive way? Well, I think there has to be an active uh, partnership between federal government, state governments, and the higher ed community. Uh, I think that any one of those entities trying to tackle it on their own without the uh, full partnership of the others, it's a, it's, it's going to be a loser. Um, uh, I think that um, uh, the higher ed community would love nothing more than for the states and federal government simply to write bigger checks, but I don't think that sufficiently incentivizes the higher ed community to do the kinds of things they need to do to work on cost controls and to work on college completion, which as I mentioned earlier, I think is a huge, huge issue in this regard. Um, a huge number of students, not half, but close to half of all students that take out loans never finish their degree. And they're therefore really hampered in their ability to repay those loans. That's an area where higher ed really has to step up and be a partner in the solution. But the other way I think that you need to address this in the way that makes it not a simple um, uh, solution is it can't just be about student debt. It has to be over about the overall college affordability issue. And that really has not been on the table in any meaningful way. We've had slogans, uh, again, from some of the same politicians about free college, for instance, but um, it's a far, far more complex issue than that. It deserves a, a more nuanced and uh, uh, careful uh, set of analyses than that in order to try to begin to solve it. You know, most colleges in America are not uh, public and simply offering free tuition at some public institutions doesn't solve um, uh, doesn't solve the problem by any means. That's great to know. And on that important note, um, we will end for today. Thank you so much again to Dr. Huddleston. Um, I've greatly enjoyed our chat, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you will join us for our next episode. And if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.